Hello, and welcome to episode 46 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you very much for listening in or viewing. Today, we add yet another episode to our In the C-Suite series. Our guest today is Will Gray, Vice President of Marketing and Commercial Operations, Corporate Accounts, at Boston Scientific. No, Will is not technically in the C-suite. However, he and his team of 115 people influence around $5 billion in revenue. He has to execute across five pillars of responsibility in corporate accounts, including marketing, strategic planning, pricing, commercial operations, and more. In other words, he has a lot more responsibility than many CEOs. He is a genuine leader. So I decided to include him in this particular series. Will is also the author of a newly minted book, which we will get to in the interview. Most of you also know that I'm the host of the MedTech Leaders community. This is a community where MedTech leaders and those aspiring to be leaders get together to help each other out with problems, solutions, best practices, ideas, and successes. You can learn more about the community at medtechleaders.net. There is a 30-day free trial. Now pay attention to the show notes. You will find links to Will's LinkedIn profile, his book, and a number of other books that he recommends. He is a voracious reader. If you like this podcast and videocast, please be sure to recommend it to friends, rate it, and or subscribe. Let's get together with Will to learn more about leadership, excelling, planning, and maintaining your edge, and his early morning meeting as a Marine with the former Secretary of Defense for the United States, James Mattis. Gray, it is really great to have you on the podcast and videocast today. It'll be really interesting to learn a lot about not only yourself, your career and everything, but also how you function within a really large organization. And then, of course, about your book. So welcome to Medical Device Success Podcast. Thanks so much, Ted. So let's just get started by telling everybody what your role is and just a, a brief amount about Boston Scientific. Great. My role is Vice President of Marketing and Commercial Operations for our corporate accounts team. And so uh, I manage you know, a, a marketing team. I have a strategy team. I have uh, pricing and contracting. A couple other uh, roles I have as well is I uh, manage the uh, strategy outside the hospital, alternative sites of service. So you think about uh, ambulatory surgery centers, as well as office-based labs. I have a team uh, that does that. And I also have responsibility for commercial responsibility for the government, meaning the, uh, the VA and the DOD. So it's, it's a role that's exciting, that's very uh, dynamic and has a lot of different things that my team does. Boston Scientific is a medical device company, 40 years old, out of obviously Boston, Massachusetts, where I live. 
you know, we, we focus on cardiovascular as well as endoscopy, urology, and pain management. And uh, it's a fantastic company. It does about about $10 billion in sales. And we're projecting after, obviously, with coming out of the pandemic, that in 2021, we'll do north of $11 billion in, in revenue globally. And a little bit more than half of that's in the U.S. Okay. And then when we look at those numbers, what are you responsible for? So uh, I like to say that our corporate accounts group touches almost everything that comes through through our divisions. We have six divisions that have a, a focus on, obviously, uh, top line revenue numbers, and they fund the journey, and they have a sales team, and a, they have a, a full team that's focused on ensuring that they're aligning with their clinicians and uh, working with them on uh, great outcomes. And we work with those internal customers, those divisions, and whether it's at a GPO level or at, at uh, an IDN level, a customer level, we work with them uh, to ensure that, that those customers have access to our products. So we touch them there, we touch them in pricing and contracting. And as I mentioned, we do about you know 5.5 or so, close to 6 billion in US revenue. And so our group in corporate accounts touches most of that revenue. Wow. And then you're directly, so you're supporting that revenue, which is nearly half the company, but then you also have some revenue that you are absolutely directly responsible for. That's right. Yeah. So I I manage the commercial uh, team for the VA, the Department of Defense, as I mentioned before. So it's a lot of revenue. I'll leave it at that. It's one of our okay. largest customers. Obviously, uh, the VA is the largest healthcare system in the U.S. You know, we have a team that focuses on that really important channel. I'm a veteran, so I'm, I'm, I have a huge amount of passion behind uh, that customer. But it's a very large for most of our competitors as well. Obviously, it's it's uh, it's our largest customer. Uh, excuse me, the largest healthcare uh, system in the U.S. and one that significant amount of revenue flowing to it. And to provide all the support not only to what you're directly responsible for, Department of Defense, VA, and also to uh, provide the support to the other divisions. How large is the team that's reporting into you? Yeah, so I have about 115 people uh, on my team. So I've got six direct reports. It's great. I have a phenomenal leadership team that spans, obviously, the United States, two of our largest kind of buildings, obviously in Boston, we have our headquarters uh, in Marlboro. And then also, you know, the center of kind of cardiovascular innovation has been Minnesota, uh, the Twin Cities. And so if you look at uh, some of the largest companies in the cardiovascular space, they've come out of Minnesota. And so we have a very large presence. We've, we've acquired a number of companies in that area. So we have a very large presence in the, in the, in the Twin Cities. And so I, uh, before the pandemic, I was there a lot, probably every two weeks. You know, we have a very strong uh, team there in Minnesota. That's where most of uh, half my team's in Minnesota, half my team's in in, uh, in Boston. Okay. And I want to come back to that in just a second. But in addition to all this and this kind of responsibility, you just became an author. And here's the book right here. Is that backwards to you? No, it's good. Okay. It's good. Yeah, because for, for me, it, it look on, on on my screen to me it looks backwards. But anyway, proactive achieving excellence in sales and customer relationships. Thank you very much for signing it. I've got my signed edition, <laughs> um, and I and I ran through it the other day. What motivated you to write this book? You know, I've had it. I had this desire for the longest time. I'm a voracious reader. It's interesting. My undergraduate degree was in history, so I'm a huge lover of history. I call it my guilty pleasure, although I shouldn't be guilty about it. I love uh, history, and obviously, my military background lends itself to that. And I'm also an achiever, and so it's something that I uh, that I thought about a few years ago. I I read this. 
great book called Left of Bang about the Marine Corps in uh, Iraq and the approach to how we really turned around with the surge and focusing on being proactive from a combat perspective. And so that that book really inspired me. I, I reached out to both of the authors and they encouraged me to, to write it. And uh, they've been they've been great in terms of that journey. And uh, Jason Riley, I have to give kudos to, was a brilliant writer and a Marine that has been a huge help for me. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits in 2020 and it was a perfect opportunity for me to really grind and kind of finish the book. And I would say that it took several iterations. I learned a lot in the process, but that was the real motivator to kind of finish it. Uh, pandemic, spending a lot of time on at home, uh, almost nothing on the road, which I was accustomed to. And that gave me the opportunity to, uh, to finish it. Okay, super. Now I'd like to go back to your responsibility because this is pretty interesting. The other day when you and I were preparing for this, you talked about how you um, look at this as your five pillars of responsibility. Could you describe those, please? Yeah, absolutely. And they're pillars because they're they're strong, and I'm really proud of them. I'm proud of my leadership team. You know, hopefully we get to talk about just my my career at Boston Scientific and how, how much I have uh, such a huge admiration for the company. And there's and I've been there 21 years, and there's a lot of people that have been there for a long time, and it's only 40 years old. So think about that. There's a lot of people that have really grown up with the company, and I think I think it speaks to culture and and the type of people that we have. And those five pillars really, I think, represent that. So one of them is marketing. I have a marketing team uh, that works on developing value propositions uh, for our customers and aligning with the divisions on product launches. I have a strategy team. So strategy is really important uh, in corporate accounts when we're engaging with customers and and trying to win versus our competition. Uh, So I have a strategy team that works very closely with our sales team and also with the divisions. Uh, pricing and contracting is critical. It's a, it's a huge opportunity for us, again, to differentiate, to have that customer experience be great. And so I've got the contract, the uh, pricing and contracting team for a number of the divisions, as well as our corporate accounts group. And I also have, as I've mentioned before, that commercial team focused on uh, the government, uh, the VA and the Department of Defense, which are two separate entities, but obviously very similar. And we've recently hired a couple recently separated military officers to come in and help us. They're ones that are passionate about the VA and the Department of Defense. They're veterans themselves, and they've done a really nice job um, helping Boston Scientific and our local sales teams really uh, navigate that complex process. And I also have responsibility for uh, ASCs and OBLs, alternative sites of service, which is obviously continuing to grow in terms of uh, the volume and and obviously payers are pushing procedures outside the hospital. And so we're seeing more and more of these sites of service pop up. So I lead that PAN BSC or Boss Scientific Strategy in corporate accounts. And uh, I also have, you know, responsibility. I guess that's my sixth pillar. It's not really a pillar <laughs> yet, but uh, we're also working. Uh, we have a, a health economics and market access manager that's working on our group as well to help our customers really understand the implications of our therapies and our technologies and how it fits in um, with their pursuit of the triple aim. Yeah. Health economics has become a really big deal the last several years, um, especially as the uh, hospitals have gotten into value analysis. And so you really need to know how to dovetail into the way the hospital systems and the buying systems look at value. And if you're not plugged into that, you could uh, really fire a blank as you're trying to get business with them. That's right. Days of you know, features and benefits and product and price, although that's obviously critical to any discussion we have, you, know, you have to be able to have discussions beyond that. Um, when you sit down 
and it's in my book. But when you sit down with a supply chain leader or a service line leader or someone in the C-suite, um, they don't want to talk about features and benefits. They want to talk about how you're going to help them navigate this really complex environment, which is even more challenging in a in a pre and a post now, hopefully soon to be post COVID world where they're, they have new struggles uh, in addition to the ones that they've had before. So if we can go in there as a trusted advisor and, and articulate the value of our technology, that's going to make, you know, again, better outcomes, improve cost of care, hopefully uh, enhance patient experience and, and be more efficient. I think uh, that, that's the type of partner they're looking for. And then on a weekly basis, I, it's hard for me to even imagine because when you and I talked before, you talked about taking, you know, 30 some trips a year to, you know, to, I guess, manage these five or six pillars. You were traveling a lot, especially to uh, Minneapolis, but how do you manage these, let's say six pillars? How do you manage it on a weekly basis, all these different functions? I'm sure like everybody, it has been really challenging you know, out of challenges, a lot of times good comes out of those challenges. I would say that, you know, I, I miss traveling, frankly, I miss it. I miss uh, seeing the team. I miss uh, seeing the office in Minnesota. I miss seeing customers face to face. Obviously, with the with our, our investments in digital, our customers' investments in digital, we are still able to engage and in some ways, certainly more efficiently and uh, more often than before which sometimes maybe the customers don't love. But I think it's been a huge challenge and one that uh, we're doing a really good job. I think we talked about this before on another call. I mean, at a time when, you know, we were under a lot of pressure from COVID-19, I mean, a lot of pressure, you know, a lot of our revenue is, is, is dependent upon elective procedures. You know, the company's under a lot of pressure, but in the, in the face of that pressure, we doubled down and invested even more in digital. Uh, like we really needed to, to you know, lead in that space. And the fact was we were probably a little bit behind in some areas. And what better time to do that than in the midst of COVID-19 when you can engage more efficient, efficiently and effectively with your, with your uh, customers. You can actually engage with, with patients as well and with different channels. Uh, and so that kind of digital investment is carried over for me to answer your question with my team. And so I'm actually able to engage more often with my team in smaller bits. I try to keep uh, the weekly staff call. So I do a weekly staff call now every Monday afternoon, and I try to keep it to 30 minutes. And sometimes it's all about business. That's rare. A lot of times it's just to catch up. And I think mental health is at the forefront of everybody. When, you, when you're used to at least traveling and breaking it up a little bit, now you're in front of a camera for eight to 10 hours a day. You know, it's challenging, especially when you go on for a year. And so I try to be cognizant of that when I engage with my customer with, or excuse me, with my with my team. But that's one thing that we're that we're doing. We have a 30 minute call, but we're also communicating with different channels to our team. So obviously we have a, a CRM tool in Salesforce.com, uh, which helps us to stay on task and focus on our priorities. But we're also doing newsletters that we send out. Um, we also have uh, videos that, that my boss or I will, will uh, send out. We'll do live webcasts. So again, trying to keep up, trying to maintain the culture and the, and the connection that's so critical at a time when people are struggling with other things like you know, their kids and schools and, uh, and all these other things. So I think we're doing a pretty good job. I don't, I'm sure nobody's got it totally figured out, but I'm pretty proud of the company with their investment and their priorities. And so did the company like put together a small group of people to actually sort of create this digital 
uh, digital strategic plan, so to speak, as 2020 hit with COVID. And it was almost like, these are the things we need to achieve. How are we going to achieve it? We're going to do videos. We're going to do e-newsletters. We're going to do this, that, the other. Is that how it was done? Yeah, we've got uh, the leadership all the way up to the top, our CEO, our chief information officer, they are all over this. They put together a cross-functional team to focus on digital enablement and focus on putting the right priorities uh, where they mattered. I'm sure to take a, a few risks to see if it works out. I think everybody's trying to figure out how do we engage our customers, whether it's case support um, or just overall medical, uh, excuse me, education, or, or overall just calling on customers uh, the most effective way. There's a lot of different platforms out there. Uh, and I think we've made a couple different uh, investments, a couple different pilots, but all the way at the top, um, as I mentioned before, totally focused on how do we optimize that digital investment. And, and uh, yeah, we're all over it and they've done a great job. And, and I'm certainly not taking credit for any of it uh, in terms of the newsletters and uh, the engagement of my team and our group. I think a lot of that came from, from, you know, uh, ideas from, from our team. You know, I have a digital, uh, uh, digital marketing manager that works on my team who's really mm -hmm. talented and, and helps us uh, look at things differently and uniquely. What we've learned, and we have metrics just like we do on, you know, our website, but we have metrics on our newsletter. And we noticed in the, in the past few months, the actual number of open rates and click rates through our newsletter has gone down. So we actually had a call this week and said, you know, people aren't loving consuming our newsletter. We were so proud of it. Because um, it got pretty long and a little wieldy and probably redundant, so we said, "All right, well, what if we did a a podcast or we do a we do a video, a short video?" And so we're going to explore a couple different things, and I think that's emblematic of what our organization is doing in this this uh, digital uh, journey as well. And so, is the newsletter is that for internal stakeholders or is this something to customers? Yeah, that's internal. That's okay, internal. yeah, that's yeah. Internal newsletter. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting that you guys hire, like even on your own team, you have a digital manager. I think that's terrific. Yep. Um, that's, in that, that's in that marketing uh, pillar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of companies have not made the investments in actual professionals that can manage the digital area. Um, they haven't done that. All right, well, that's, that's really great. Great insight. And um, I want to come back to this in a second, but I would like you to like, just give us a brief synopsis of your career because in a sense, you're a rare bird. I mean, most people change careers like something like seven or eight times in their lifetime now. And, you know, you got in Boston scientific, well, you started the Marines we, and I want, so you have to start there. That's very interesting. But then you got into Boston Scientific and off you went and you've, you're still there. So if you could just tell us about your career, it'd be great. Yeah. Thanks, Ted. You know, I, I uh, went to University of Florida undergrad. I'd always wanted to go in the military, met somebody in college who talked about this officer program. And I was like, this is great. And I went, this is great, right? Yeah. <laughs> I went through it. If we have time, I'll talk about, you know, the Marine Corps. But I mean, when I meet a Marine, you hear about, you know, Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine. And there's a, there's a, you know, camaraderie and it's true. And I think mm -hmm. part, of, part of it is because what you go through to become a, a Marine is so hard and so tough. Uh, and I know whenever I meet a Marine officer or a Marine, I know what they've been through because it was really, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I've done some really tough stuff, you know, from a uh, endurance perspective in my life, but nothing compares to what it takes to go through officer candidate school in the Marine Corps. So Getting through that, uh, having some success, really going to Somalia for four months where I got to see 
really reflect on how great America is to see we're a place that was, you know, it was a, you know, really challenging place for, um, for families to be in. I think it gave me kind of uh, a lot of motivation and a lot of confidence coming back. So I, after four years, I went and got my MBA, went back to the University of Florida, got my MBA. And I just knew going through the process that I didn't want to do marketing or like traditional marketing or finance and sit in an office. And the, and the, the group from Frito-Lay came in and I was like, these are the kind of people I want to be around. They, were, they weren't wearing suits. They were laughing. They were having fun. They reminded me of Marines. And they said, listen, before you're able to lead one of our teams in sales, you need to be able to deliver the chips for four months and run a route. All right. You're no better than us. You're going to learn how to do it so that when you go in and lead a team, you, you can teach them how to do it. It's right from the Marine Corps playbook. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so I did that. I was there at Frito-Lay for two and a half years. And I got to tell you, it's an amazing experience. It's an amazing company. They teach you how to sell. They have contests. You know, they don't make a lot of money, uh, you know, many of the salespeople, but it doesn't matter. It's about the team, uh, the culture and, and winning. And uh, you can't argue with their success. Anyway, I was called by a company called Boston Scientific. I had never heard of them. And I met two gentlemen for an interview and I immediately knew that was a place I wanted to be. They were so they were great. One of them is uh, still my boss. He's been my boss three different times. <laughs> and I think um, I think it'll, it, it speaks to the company. Only 40 years old, but you have a lot of people that have been there a, a long time. And I think, again, that speaks to culture. And, and I've, I've held seven, seven different roles in 21 years, and I've never been bored and I've always been challenged. And uh, I'm thankful to the company for, for those opportunities and for the great people that I've worked with. But you started in sales. So you started out carrying a bag. That's right. So one question I had for you was, you know, this whole transition from being a Marine and then getting into um, sales. So first for Theater Lay and then with with Boston Scientific, because in, in the in the Marine Corps, it's all like, you know, the the process, the leadership, they are right. And, you know, you just, you do, you know, you follow your orders and you get the job done and so on and so forth. Now, when you go into Frito-Lay or Boston Scientific, the customer's always right. Yeah. How did, how, what kind of adjustment was that? You know, I think it was pretty seamless. I think um, there's a lot of parallels. What I talked about before with Frito-Lay and the culture and, you got the job done. I mean, you, you were in there loading the truck at three in the morning and you had to go do your route. There wasn't like, you know what, if you don't do it, then, you know, it's okay. It's very similar to the Marine Corps, right? You have a job. It's if, if you're, if you're going to swab the deck, you got to swab the deck. And I think, so I think there's a lot of parallels there. I think leadership and whether in the Marine Corps or at Frito-Lay or at Boston Scientific is all the same. Do you care? You know, it's in, in my book. I mean, does it, does a leader eat last? Is the leader willing to uh, run to friction and you know do the job when uh, when when needed? And that's that's the same in the in the Marine Corps. And that so I I think, uh, but not every Marine uh, is going to do great at sales, right? That's why I think the Marine Corps and the military is so special. Is each person is different and they come from different backgrounds. And some people have no education and they're from the country. And some people are high, highly educated from the city and they all come together and they all have to do. This. That's the great thing on the rifle range. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter where you came from, you have to shoot on the rifle range and you have to qualify. That is the beauty, I think, one of the many beauties of, of the military. And I think it's the same in sales. I was reflecting on that. You know, there's a scorecard. 
that's that's the, another reason I really like sales is there is a scorecard, there is a number, and you can work really hard, uh, understand your products really well, and put together a plan and execute on that plan. And for the most part, if you work really hard and leverage your resources, you're going to hit plan and you're going to you're going to excel. So I think I think that is very similar to you know the rifle range in the Marine Corps or it's a competition in the Marine Corps. There is a lot of parallels. But to your point, not everybody, not every Marine is great at going in and, uh, you know, developing a relationship or, you know, for me, I guess, as I reflect on it, for me, one of the, the hardest things was the time that I, you know, here I was a Marine Corps officer, an MBA from University of Florida, driving a, a, a chip truck, which I did, which I thought was fine, which I was great. That was great. And then I went to the, to the uh, receiving door of a grocery store and got, you know, cussed out for, uh, I can't even remember some small, <laughs> some small, uh, you know, uh, mistake. And I thought there were times I was like, all right, I'm not sure if, if this is exactly wonderful. Um, so, I mean, there are times, right. It like, it's like right. Stars, you're always going to have challenges. So, um, but it's about perseverance and grit and looking at the, looking at the, uh, the long view. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. I worked with a guy that was, uh, um, an army officer, that then went to work for American Hospital Supply. I was his specialist, product specialist, and he yeah. was the actual account person responsible for the account. And we did get kicked out of an operating room one time <laughs> because he was sort of charge the hill kind of guy. On the other hand, he was, and it could have been that operating room supervisor might have just had a bad day because a couple of weeks later we went in there and it was like old home week. So we just might have caught her on a on a bad day, but he was he was aggressive. He was pursuing his objectives and he was very successful. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember thinking, yeah, you might, are you going too far? And ah, we got the sale. So um, there's something to be said for, you know, having that determination, right? Um, you also have to have, have to have EQ and some yes. people, it doesn't matter if they're military or not. If you can't sense what's going on around you, you can't read the room. Um, it's cringeworthy. And, and I've seen it, you know, again, whether you're military or not, you know, we've had people, we, we've had programs where we brought people in from the military and put them in clinical roles and stuff. And you look at their resume and you're like, man, this unbelievable combat veteran, you know, service Academy, he's, he or she is going to be amazing. And it just hasn't worked out whether they couldn't make the transition or they didn't like it. Right. They didn't, you know, I don't like asking people to do stuff or, you know, I want to go run my own thing. I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, and then there's some that, you know, have, you know, have come in and done amazing things. I mean, Alex Gorski's the West Point grad, right? He's the CEO of Johnson and Johnson. Uh, there's many stories like that of, you know, former military that have done amazing things, uh, in corporate America. Absolutely. When you say EQ, you want to tell the audience what you mean by that? Yeah. So EQ is emotional intelligence and yeah. that's, um, you know, that, that's, being able to, again, read a room, how you interact with people, um, you know, how you develop relationships. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's very apparent when people don't, uh, can't read their own emotions and tamp them down when necessary, right? Show when they're upset, don't handle rejection well. Um, right. Those have, you know, that have great EQ. I think you need great EQ in sales. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Okay, so we talked about the fact that, you know, having an entire career at one company is, is somewhat rare. Tell us a little bit about, you know, this Boston Scientific experience 
I guess talk about the kind of culture that this company has been able to continue to uh, create and and invigorate to keep people like yourself involved for long periods of time. Yeah, it's re- it's really special. I think um, I live in in uh, Concord, Massachusetts, which is actually, as legend has it, how the company was founded. There was a sales and marketing person. And there was a uh, an engineer. They met at a soccer game here in Concord, Massachusetts, and started off a conversation and said, "Wouldn't it be great?" And then 1979, they bought a company called Meditech, and that uh, that was the start of Boston Scientific. And you know, I guess it's been now uh, 41 years and counting. That kind of small town culture at the time really has never changed for me. We've made some really transformative acquisitions, really large acquisitions. Some would say not the right ones. Some would say we've made some really good ones. Uh, we now have six divisions. We have a you know division out of California. We have a couple in um, the Boston area and we have three in Minnesota, right? You've got the full spectrum across, uh, across the US, 45% or so of our revenues outside the US. You have that huge presence. And in spite of that, I think our culture is really, really positive. And it's it speaks to our values. Our CEO, Mike Mahoney, I'm, you know, uh, came from J&J, uh, among other places, and he's been an amazing, inspirational leader. And he's focused on people. He's focused on category leadership. He's focused on our values. And I love his terminology, the winning spirit. I think it captures the company. And that's, try, that's how I try to think about things through my team is do we have the winning spirit? When there's a challenge going on, we're trying to solve. If we're not collaborating or communicating well, I always think about, you know, am I bringing the winning spirit to that conversation? And uh, I think that speaks to to our company. As I mentioned before, we also have people that have been here, a lot of people for over 20 years. And we have a lot of new people, obviously. But the people, I think some of the leadership that's been here for a long time, when things go south or things go wrong or we don't we don't agree, we're able to pick up the phone and call that person that we knew 15, 20 years ago. And that that's special. I don't I don't think our competitors have that. And I'm sure there are some some places they do. And it's not perfect. But I do think that's an interesting advantage of uh, Boston Scientific. Great. Another thing about your career, which I think is interesting, and, and I picked this up a little bit in the book and in our conversation, is that you frequently refer to the President's Club um, awards that you received you i think you were in president's club four times so it seems like you you regularly think back to the successes early in your sales career but really i would almost say that some of your biggest accomplishments have been as a leader latter in your career but but you seem to look back at that why why does that happen yeah, I think I, I reflect on the fact that there's four presidents clubs, but you know, really three of those four were as a team, and so uh, I'd love to be able to take credit for for all those, but really it was the team, and I think that's the essence of the book. I think when I, if you kind of, th- if I, as I think about the book and I and I reflect on it, what I'm really the book a lot a lot is observations I've had of of greatness, whether that's at, in the Marine Corps and Frito Lay in Boston Scientific or in history. And it's not my greatness, believe me. It's greatness I've observed and tried to emulate in a lot of ways how I've been a sales professional and, and, a, and a leader. And so those four presidents clubs, and again, those were those were all done before 2010. Three of those were 
were as a team. And I was able to identify some really great talent. And I was able to uh, work with some really great sales professionals who I'm really proud of who were able to accomplish that. So I think it's a testament to my team, not me. I hope it doesn't come across as me, but I think I've, I've, I've just been fortunate to work for some great people and alongside uh, some great people. Right. And when we, uh, another thought about Boston Scientific and going back to the 2020 year and the pandemic, and you already commented that Boston Scientific wasn't one of the companies that benefited tremendously from the pandemic, like Abbott, for example, but Boston Scientific actually took a hit. And we talked about the digital investment, so we talked about that. But in terms of walking the walk with other employees and other people that have to make a sacrifice, because you did have to close some plants and things, uh, at least temporarily, what kind of sacrifices did they ask the executive team to take, um, you know, to contribute to this, you know, this period where there was this downturn in revenues for Boston Scientific? We took some hits in uh, in Q2. You know, it was definitely a challenge for us, as I mentioned before. High, highly elective, uh, dependent uh, organization. You know, we're not in diagnostics or any any kind of non-elective type of uh, procedures. So for us, it was we were hit pretty hard, uh, obviously uh, globally. And so that that was certainly uh, a challenge. And and I and the EC and uh, our board, I, they weren't asked. I don't believe they were asked to do anything. And I think it's in our it's in our uh, annual report. You know, they they volunteered to take uh, reductions in in pay, significant. I think our CEOs didn't take pay, and so you know, I think that speaks to leadership. I think it speaks to culture, and it's no surprise. And then once Q2 started, we started coming out of Q2, and st- things started looking much better in Q3. We went back to to normal, somewhat normal, and then Q4 improved even better. And then uh, just really optimistic about Q1 in 2021. I know we put out our I know we put out our Q4 uh, results. I don't think our Q1 results are out yet, but you know I'm always optimistic, and I think you know our CEO is optimistic, and so I think I think we're going to get out of this thing and have a really good year. But uh, just as another example, you you had to go to a four day work week. We did. people like yourself, you know, yeah, other 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 leaders had to do that, which I think is really quite good. I mean, if other people are, are, are suffering in the organization and taking, making something kind of sacrifice, I love it. I love to see when leaders have to also make a sacrifice, just like you said, with the CEOs, the C-suite, the, the board and so on. So anyway, I think that's, that just reinforces the culture. And I think, I guess that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the company, I think, uh, you know, was was very open about, you know, our, our number one goal is to obviously focus on patients, but also preserve jobs. You know, nobody expected the pandemic to happen. And even even if you're a $10 billion company, you know, it hurts. And so certainly, you know, patient care suffered. And we're just really excited that uh, patients are, are being treated uh, now, especially the ones that um, that pushed off care. So again, it looks like volumes are, are increasing pretty rapidly. Now, we talked about how your travel went from, you know, almost weekly <clears throat> to zip in 2020. And you and I talked the other day about um, how you don't think it's going to go back to the kind of travel that you had before. What do you think the new normal is going to be like? 
So it's interesting. I think when the pandemic first happened, there was a lot of concern that, oh no, reps will never get back in the hospital again. You know, how, how are we ever going to get in? It wasn't as bad as we thought. And we have a lot of uh, procedures that really, really do need the reps in place. And now we've come back to, you know, getting much better, better access now. And I don't know if it'll, if it's going to swing all the way back or we're going to all come back in. I think that those digital investments I mentioned before are going to be utilized by many health systems. Uh, you probably have some health systems that will say, listen, we prefer to have that, uh, you know, that piece of equipment in the OR that can basically provide, you know, access from uh, outside the lab to, uh, to be there to help support the case. I think that will happen in, in, in many ways. So I, so I think it wasn't as bad as we thought, and it's not going to come back all the way that we thought it would. You know, and, and I mentioned before in terms of uh, my role, I miss, I miss traveling. I only traveled twice last year, and I've only traveled once this year. So I miss seeing my team face-to-face, and I miss you know, certainly seeing customers. So I don't think it'll get back to where it was. I was going to Minnesota probably twice a month on average. I'm going to assume I'll be once, you know, once we're fully back in, I'm going to assume I'll be going back on the road probably 50% of what it was before. 50%. That's pretty significant. Yeah. Um, When we talk about access for the reps in the hospitals, especially related to procedures where uh, they may need some support, do you know if anybody's taken advantage of these systems like uh, Proximy or Explorer Surgical? I've interviewed both their CEOs. Yes. Yep. So uh, there's several uh, systems like that that are being invested in. We have a technology called Ask Angie that we've it's, that we invented ourselves. Mm-hmm. That is a uh, it's a platform uh, a camera that basically goes into the lab, and you can actually use your hands, and um, so you can actually you know touch pieces of equipment and show the staff exactly um, you know what to turn on. You can point at images on the camera. Uh, you could actually point at you know images on uh, the patient. Uh, in terms of trying to point out and helping the case. So we've had that technology for uh, a couple of years. And so that is technologies like that that I do truly believe we'll continue to invest in. And that also helps us when I talked before about ambulatory surgery centers and office-based labs, right, where now you have more sites of service. So just the ability to cover all these cases at different sites of service that are popping up, these types of technologies help as well. Right. You know, it's a funny thing. The other day I was um, sort of collaborating with a few members of my community and I was just reflecting that I don't like do a regular phone call that much often anymore. You know, I just don't do it very often. It's I'm always asking somebody, do you want to have a virtual call? Should I set up a Zoom call? It's almost like Zoom has replaced the telephone for me. That's a great point. Yeah. It's kind of nice. I mean, I, I actually think there's been some real benefits in connection and touch points. I'm probably talking to a number of people on my team a lot more now, mm-hmm. you know, on camera than I ever did before. So, I mean, I, there is, there are some real benefits to it, but I will say also there's times where, you know, I, I need to get out and go walk and get on the phone and, um, and, and talk that way instead of just sitting in my office all day. I, I need that freedom to go out and stretch my legs a little bit and, and mix up the, uh, the environment. And so with this new normal, do you think that down at the sales level there in the Boston Scientific Organization, they're getting the direction that you should do more virtually when you can uh, cover cases when, when you believe you need to be there, but otherwise, you know, we've given you the tools, 
you can be very effective, maybe even more productive, but you know, use these virtual tools. Are they getting this kind of direction? I don't think we've made a massive, you know, investment in one platform and said this is going to be the one that we're going to embrace. Now, remember, some of the some of the um, platforms are really expensive, right? Yeah. So it takes a capital commitment from the hospital, and so I know that Mass General is doing a uh, and Harvard are doing a study on you know remote patient management and you know basically uh, case support and looking at the safety of it, the efficacy of it, the cost of it. So I think there'll be a lot of studies that come out like that. We do have the Ask Angie platform. There's some, you know, kind of subtle technologies or subtle approaches to it, like, you know, your iPhone or your phone, right? I mean, that can work. I mean, you can do the, uh, you know, the live video off your phone and right. you can talk to a customer. So I mean, it, that, even that's happening. So I don't think there's an edict from from the organization saying, use them and, and let's go do it. But I think clearly it's happening and I think it'll continue to happen. The other, the other kind of phenomenon that you could see is more inside sales, right? Yes. So uh, we, we've certainly looked at that historically with mixed results, but I think it's something that in some of our divisions we're really focused on and investing in. So I, I think you could see more of that inside sales type of approach, depending on the technology um, and the, the customer base. I, I agree with you a hundred percent on that. I think inside sales does have a, a really big role going into the future. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about your, let's segue into the book, I should say, because I really like this uh, one quote that starts off one of your uh, chapters, which is whether in the streets of Mogadishu, Somalia, or in the boardrooms of Wall Street, life has a way of humbling you, has a way of humbling if you're not prepared. So can you, can you reflect on a humbling experience? <laughs> There's a lot of them. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think the one that comes to mind is I was at in a meeting with the CEO of a hospital. And I was so excited. I was going to go talk to the CEO. It was a big hospital system. And I was thrilled. And we're going to talk. I was going to talk to him about our product pipeline and how great Boss Scientific was. And, you know, he uh, he basically from the second I walked in there, he had a look on his face like, what are you doing here? Um, and he, he almost said as much. And he, he wasn't rude. But I mean, you could literally I mean, you think about the CEO of a large hospital. He's got some, you know. Some somebody from Boston Scientific, he probably barely even knows. He wasn't like it wasn't like he was a, a cardiologist or anything. And I was there alone, so he didn't even bring along, you know, I didn't even bring along his service line leader, which would have been a smart move. Uh, it was really uncomfortable, and it and it ended after probably 15 minutes, and it was a little bit embarrassing. And so we actually, from that meeting, we ended up hiring a consultant. A, a gentleman by the name of Mark Dixon. I don't know if you know Mark, but he's a uh, he's a former. Uh, CEO of Abbott Northwestern, and he's an amazing person. Uh, and you know, he basically came and really taught us how to talk to the C-suite. He taught us about we didn't. It was a language we didn't even know. He taught us about the triple aim. I didn't. We didn't even know what the triple aim was. We we knew about features and benefits. We knew about our products, uh, but we didn't know about the triple aim. We didn't know about the scorecards. We didn't know about value-based healthcare. And so we went uh, through a journey with Mark, and we did a lot of role playing and really trying to understand it. And so we. I think through that process, we became, we really matured in terms of our uh, sales professionals and we knew how to go approach a CEO like that. Uh, and probably the meeting was, was ne- would never, we probably never would have gone in and met with the CEO at all and didn't need to. Uh, CEO and Mark taught us that. The CEO has other priorities. Go focus on the supply chain, or excuse me, the service line leader, because that's the person that you really need to focus on. So it was a humbling experience, embarrassing, 
but uh, it taught me a lot and I'm, and I'm glad it happened. Right. How early was that in your current role at, um, in, in charge of corporate? Yeah, it was probably two years. In uh, my first in corporate account, I came over in 2012, the first um, you know, four years over there, I managed the eastern part of the U.S., so it was during it was during that time. Uh-huh. What's interesting is though, that humbling experience. You did have a reaction to it, which set the stage for probably greater success. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that that's um, a that's a great one. Yeah, and you refer to a couple other things in the in the book, a couple other uh, situations where um, it was clear that the agenda that the C-suite person had in the hospital was totally different than the agenda um, your team uh, mates had going in to, you know, talk to that particular person. And the the result was not good, but it was a learning, another learning experience. Very similar. So in your, in your book, you talk, you have a lot of historical references and some of them are real historical and then others are um, maybe a little bit more current relative to current businesses and stu- such. Where did all this come from? You know, I, I'm sure you've heard of Clifton Strengths. Previously, it was called Strength Finders. And, you know, my number one strength is learner, which is no surprise. I'm a history major uh, in undergrad, and uh, you know, I, I wrote a book. And so I just love, I'm fascinated with learning new things. I'm, I'm just a continual learner. And so for me, it, it made a lot of sense as I told stories, as I reflected on successes and challenges and opportunities, um, you know, there's a lot of parallels to, to history as Winston Churchill, I think he stole the line, but he says those, those that, that what, don't pay attention to history are doomed to, to repeat it, something to that effect. But that's true, right? Uh, right. There's case after case of companies that didn't look at the small player and decided they were going to continue doing what they're doing and failing. And I think the same holds true, you know, in sales, you know, if you continue doing what you're doing, you don't innovate, you don't adapt, uh, you don't overcome, then you're going to, you're going to, somebody's going to come in with a better, a better product, uh, a different niche and come in and take your business away from you. So I think the parallels are, are, to me, they're fascinating. I think it's one of the reasons you write the book, right? It's, it's to, it's to learn and to improve yourself. And you're kind of fascinated by something. And for me, I've always had a fascination with history and its uh, utility to current day. Right. And one thing I'll say about the book is I like the fact that it's short. Yeah. You know, there's some really good business books out there. Like the, the one minute manager was very short, right? And that's a, that's an iconic book. Don't know if it's absolutely correct, but it was, that's a good <laughs> example. <laughs> so you get straight to the point as opposed to, writing a lot of double talk about a particular subject. Uh, and so that's something I really appreciated about the book. You know, in the second ch- chapter, you talked about the quarterly business review, the QBR, and y- you start, you mentioned starting and ending with a customer. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so many times that I've gone into meetings uh, with what we call a pipeline presentation and I don't know if you know what that is. I'm sure you know what that is, Ted, but I mean, it's basically, it's all of our products. Like, let me show you all of our products. It was a great story down in Florida where we started, we pulled out the computer and started, you know, firing it up. And she's like, no, don't turn on the computer. I don't want to, I don't want to see your presentation about your expensive products that you want me to buy. I'm already over budget and I don't want to hear it. And that for me was an epiphany. It was a, it was a light bulb that said, you know, what are we doing? What are we coming in here talking about our products for? Why don't we sit down and actually ask the customer what's important? I'll also learn that from Mark Dixon. 
And so when you're doing a quarterly business review, which I think is really important in terms of planning and reminding the customer the value that you're offering, think about what's important to the customer before you go in there and frame that review around the customer's priorities. Go deep and understand what's really important to that customer. It may be even different within that within that customer, but you know, leverage prior experiences and whether you want to do research or, or whatever, but you should really think about the customer and how your presentation fits with, with what's important to them. And that could even start even before the meeting. You could ask them, hey, listen, we have a QBR coming up. What's important to you? What, what do you want us to touch on? Are there any hot buttons, any things that you're really concerned about or want to talk about? So that when you come in, it's a highly efficient meeting and a memorable meeting for the customer. So I think it's really important. Absolutely. And then we shift to another thing, which I th- which is uh, a good discussion, which is the whole concept of smart. Can yeah. you can we you know? Why don't you describe smart? And then my second question to that is, why do so many people fail at at executing something similar to smart? So smart goals are specific, measurable, actionable, relevant, and time bound. So when you create goals, hopefully either with the customer or your internal stakeholders, um, that each goal that you create, number one, should be consultative, not just you create the goals. You should actually, it should be a collaborative exercise, uh, but it should meet those standards. And if they don't meet those standards, then you need to update your goals because those are really important. And I, I guess I, I have a really strong, I guess, uh, opinion on this one, on why a lot of people don't do them. Uh, it's hard. It's hard work to put together smart goals. Um, and it's hard to follow up on them and see if you've accomplished them. I've just gone through this, uh, my kind of, I do a quarterly top five with uh, each one of my, my leaders on my team. And, you know, it's not the most exciting, fun thing that we do. Let's just be honest. It's not, you know, it's not exciting. It's not like you're in the hospital talking to a, a physician about a new product and everything's wonderful. I mean, you, it's, it can be pretty dry. So I think for most people, it's easier to kind of look the other way and just move on and everything's looking good. We're okay. Uh, and that's why I think most people don't do smart goals. You know, John Doerr wrote the, the book, measure what matters. You know, it's in my book and that's what those are. Those are smart goals that uh, have proven to be uh, in, in history. If you have smart goals that are made in collaboration with others, um, you will be more successful and you will focus on what's really important. So I'm a big believer in them. Okay. No, it's because I it makes a lot of sense, and I can see. Yeah, it can be dry, and it can also be painful if you're not yeah. if you're not achieving some of the things. And it, I think you're right; it is easier to get lost in some other rah rah, and not really get down to the brass tacks of are we really getting these things done? So, okay. Anyway, I thought that was a, a nice part of the book. Um, you know, in the leadership section, you know the Marine leader of you really jumps out because you talk about eating last, right? And lead it's by leading by example. So I have to ask you, like, if you're in the field, do you stay in the same level hotel that other members, lower members of your team stay at? Same level hotel? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a hotel that we all stay. It's, it's, I don't know if it's sad. Maybe it's kind of cool in in, in, uh, Minnesota. There's a certain hotel that I believe if I do the math, because I've been going there, uh, I've been going there for 17 years. I think I've, I've spent almost two years of my life in that hotel. 
which is, I don't know if that's sad or that's good. I, I, I still haven't figured <laughs> that one out. The fact, it's sad, it sounds okay to me. I, lo- I, love the, I love the gym and I love the crew in the uh, concierge room. But um, yeah, so we all, we all stay there and, uh, and always have. And I think it, it, it follows, you know, the, the focus of eat last. I mean, my boss is very humble. Our CEO is humble. You know, I think, uh, I think we have a really humble culture. I don't, there, there's not a lot of that. Hey, I'm the, I've seen it in other organizations. We're not perfect. Believe me, we're far from perfect. Um, but, um, you know, we have a pretty humble, humble group. And, you know, we had a, we had a round table with customers the other night, uh, two hours starting at five o'clock Eastern. And, you know, our CEO jumped on for, for all two hours from five to 7 PM on, a, it was like on a Thursday night. And I just, I, you know, my boss and I were talking about afterwards, like, how many CEOs do you think would have done that? Not many. So I think that's just the culture. Yeah, I, I've worked for companies where the top brass would stay at the real high-level hotel, like at a convention or something like that, and everybody else is out in the dregs. And I never would do that myself when I was a, a business manager and leader. I always stayed with the rest of the team. I wouldn't stay with the, even though I could have, I was, you know, VP level, but that always bothered me. Well, Ted, you know, there's another, so, hey, Ted, it's so funny that I, w- I was confused by the question just because it didn't even occur to me that that would even happen. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, we, happens we don't all even, the time. We, yeah. It's like, well, of course not. We all stay at the same hotel. So that, I think that speaks to the culture. Sure. Absolutely. And there's another section of the book that I, I really liked, which is the uh, maintaining the edge. And this goes a little bit to your discussion of, you know, being a constant learner and everything, but, um, you know, talk just a little bit about maintaining the edge and what do you do to maintain your edge? Yeah. And I think you've heard from this, uh, this talk. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in observing other people and kind of relating to that. Um, the, uh, there's an author and former seal named, uh, David Goggins, and he talks about the voice. Everybody has a voice in their head and, Sometimes the voice is telling you negative things like, you know, you don't need to get up. You don't need to, you don't need to respond to that customer. You don't need to you know, respond to that email or, you know, go ahead and sleep in. There's also a voice that my head's always been strong that says, you know, get better, do more. Are you stretching yourself? So for me, that's what maintaining the edge is. And whether it's, you know, uh, athletically, fitness wise, health or, you know, in my job, I'm always trying to say, how can I get better? How can I learn more? How can I achieve more? How can I support my team better? How can I develop my team, give them more opportunities? And so that to me is maintaining the edge. You know, that's why it's exciting to do this health, economic and market access uh, role. It's exciting to do this outside the hospital, ambulatory surgery center. This is all new frontier, new stuff. Don't know much about, but I get to learn. And that that's maintaining the edge. And that's the way I look at it. Absolutely. And one thing I was going to say, because uh, our attendees still with us, and, and if you have a question, you can put it in the chat. Feel free to throw up a question in the chat as we're getting to the end of our program here. Any other stories or anything else you want to share, You know, either from the book, from the career? Yeah, first of all, this has been fantastic. And it's been a, it's a great honor for me to be here and meet you. And I think... I love the story. Two stories. I don't know if we have time, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try to tell them real quick. Sure, we got we got time. So we if time. we go over, it's up. To, it's your time that I'm worried okay. about. So no, no, it's great. Okay. So my my first one is about Jim Mattis. When I was a young lieutenant, um, I come back from Somalia, and then Colonel Mattis 
was my regimental commander without getting too far in the weeds. You know, every night at a base in the Marines and really all services, there is an officer of the day. And so that officer of the day is basically like a night watch person who basically answers the phone. If there's an emergency, a fire alarm goes off, they're just at the desk. And so you're allowed, and as a young lieutenant, you know, that's who's put on these, these not unglamorous, if that's a word, job. And so I was doing it and usually with a enlisted uh, Marine with you. And during the night, you can rotate, watch, one person sleeps and the other doesn't. And if memory serves, it was 2 a.m. on a Sunday. And I hear this commotion. I was sleeping. The, the sergeant was awake. And I hear this commotion. I come up and it's Colonel Mattis, who became, you know, obviously General Mattis, our Secretary of Defense. And he was stopping in at two in the morning to check on us, to make sure that we were awake and that we were doing our duty. And so when I, when I reflect on that, I reflect on leadership. I reflect on the fact that, you know, he was coming in to check. So you better, you better be prepared and you better be, you better be ready. But also he believed in the Marine Corps so much and he believed in his command and he cared about his command that he wanted to make sure there was, there was order and discipline. The even better story there is five years later, Christmas night, he did the same thing. It was actually in the Washington Post while he was a, I think it was a two-star at the time. And the, the base general came up and checked. And the sergeant, he, I guess uh, General Mattis is in the back somewhere. The sergeant said, who's the officer of the day? And he said, that's General Mattis. I'm like, no, no, not who's the officer of the day? What lieutenant? He goes, it's General Mattis. And General Mattis came around the corner in full uniform. And what happened is he had gone there and relieved the lieutenant and sent him home so that he could go spend time with his family on Christmas Day. And General Mattis was standing post that night. So, oh my gosh, that's, that's so that's an amazing story on on Mattis and his leadership. And a lot, my last story, it's a uh, it's kind of a comical story about improvising in the book, improvising, adapting, and overcome. So there was a young uh, college, almost college grad, who was trying to get a job at a company, and there was a hiring conference, and he flew in. It was like in L.A., and he was in on the East Coast, and there's a connection. He lost his luggage, and he. Uh, he lost his luggage and it was late at night. He shows up to the hotel. I would have been panicking. Um, he doesn't know what to do. He has to get up early in the morning and meet a, a bunch of candidates there. And he goes and he sees somebody in a tuxedo and he goes and he finds out it's the banquet, banquet manager. And he goes, hey, listen, I'm in a pickle. I'll give you 10 bucks if you let me wear your jacket. You look like you're about the same size as me. The guy's like, 10 bucks, great. So he grabs his jacket. He looks across the, hall, the, uh, the lobby and sees a couple other people about his age, probably candidates. And he goes up and just starts talking to him and says, hey, listen, I lost my luggage. Do you guys have an extra shirt and tie? And one of the guys is like, yeah, no problem. And, and so the next, the next morning, as legend has it, he shows up in this you know, tux and his shirt and a tie. And he starts telling the story. And there's a room full of candidates getting ready. And, and rumor or legend has it, there was two open jobs that all these people were interviewing for. And one of the people that was there ended up working at our company and became a good friend. And he was the one that told the story that when the person with the tux, borrowed tux and borrowed shirt, t- started telling everybody about the story about how he, how he had found the, the, the banquet manager's tux and found another shirt and tie, even though there were two jobs starting that morning, he knew there was only one left. Uh, in other words, the guy was such a great salesman. He had been able to come in, come in and get a, you know, improvise, adapt, and overcome in a really tough situation. And I often ask myself, would I have uh, had the wherewithal, maturity, and the poise to do what he did? And he got that job and uh, the rest <laughs> of history. So that's, that's uh, a another great, great story. story about overcoming. And that's a good story for a young person, right? Who, yeah. you know, listen, don't let adversity smile, laugh, and, and work through it. 
And I, I always think I wish I'd had the poise. I don't know if I would have had the poise to handle it like he did. Great, great. And then in addition to your book, any other books you'd recommend for um, uh, people uh, that are listening to this uh, program? Yeah, I mentioned Left of Bang. Um, great book. It's about being proactive. Uh, a lot of similar uh, themes. Um, and that's by Jason Riley and Patrick Van Horn. Uh, I think many people know Outliers uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, it's I love great, that book. Yeah. Great, fantastic book. And one of my favorite authors, and you can probably hear a lot of the themes coming from it today, is Stephen Pressfield. Do you know who he is, Ted? No, I don't. So he wrote uh, my, one of my favorite books. It's called Turning Pro. But he's known for le- The Legend of Vagar Bants, oh. um, Gates of Fire. Yeah. Um, but he's, uh, he's a fantastic author. Uh, quick read, uh, again, Turning Pro. And it, it, this is the concept of a lot of what I've talked about is like if you want to be great at something – it's, it's hard work. It's discipline. Uh, it's getting after it. Similar to what Gladwell sell, says in uh, Outliers. And then the last one I just picked up uh, after a conversation with somebody else, How Will You Measure Your Life is the name of the book. How, how Will You Measure Your Life? And it was written by Clay Christensen, who also wrote Innovator's Dilemma. And he's a uh, Harvard, he, he was a Harvard Business School professor and kind of a legend. But uh, those are ones uh, that I recommend. They're really good. No, ex- excellent. Thank you very much. Because I always put those in the show notes for people so they can, you know, find a link to them if they're interested in them. And turn, turning pro, I just that's always been a uh, something that has bothered me in sales is when you get people that consider themselves sales professionals, but they're not willing to be coached and they're not willing to maintain that edge, which is what you're talking about. But if you find them in the morning at, at the breakfast table, like in a hotel, they're reading the sports section of all their idols, which are pros who are willing to be coached and who are working very hard all the time to be better, better, you know, jump higher, run faster, whatever it might mean. I think that's uh, that's great turning pro. I like that. Plus maintain the edge out of your book. Well, Will, it has been great talking to you and I, I'd like to reserve the right to you know, ask you back, even if it's a short follow-up type of um, program sometime in the future, see how your book's gone, how you and your team have continued to, you know, come out of the COVID year and to make progress. I, I hope we get a chance to, to do that sometime in the future. I'd love to, Ted. Thank you so much for this forum. This has been a, a true pleasure and an honor to do it, to work with you on this. And uh, I'm very impressed with uh, the entire process and I look forward to staying in, in, in touch with you. Are you just a little bit inspired? I am. If you don't feel the positive energy streaming off of Will Gray, then I think you need to listen to this podcast again. He reminds me of a quote from one of our previous C-suite guests, which was something to the effect of, to make progress in your career, master the role you are in now. Will has mastered every challenge and responsibility thrown his way. So let me ask you, what is your leadership style? Do you eat last? Do you have a plan? Do you turn losses into learning opportunities that can be the foundation of victories in the long term? And are you maintaining your edge? It doesn't matter what level you're at in your organization, you can apply these lessons. And I have to tell you, I'm doing some serious introspection myself. 
Again, thanks for sharing your time with me and Will today. I hope it was beneficial. And don't forget the show notes. Now go win your week. <laughs>